see the doctor coming with interns inside and just by the look just by the look on their faces I knew that this was bad I really wanted to just like rewind you know like I was in a movie rewind them walking walking backwards you know and they come to the bottom of the bed and he just says Julie you have tumors in your brain your both lungs your liver your pancreas you all of your lymph nodes I'm really sorry this isn't good Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to remind you to sign up for the Bold Moves Podcast Club. If you haven't yet signed up, I'm inviting you to join our community. It's so fun to see the bold moves that people are working on, anything from finding my career path to advancing my career or finding my first job in a new specific field, even getting more focused and I'm still deciding. Or more concrete, like I'm trying to write a book this year, or I'm getting alignment in my business. So whatever camp you fall into, whether you don't know what your bold move is or you have a really specific bold move in mind, I want you to come and join the Bold Moves Podcast Club. In the Podcast Club, this is a place where all of the insights from the podcast meets action. I share lessons from what we can learn from my podcast guests about being bold and from my own bold moves journey to empower and support you in your bold moves. When you sign up, right away you'll begin receiving the bold moves recipe. It's a three-part framework for how to make a bold move, and it's going to help you make leaps forward in your bold moves journey. You'll learn all about the three parts, your desire plus who plus action equals how to make a bold move. Then you'll get prompts to apply the recipe to your bold moves. I'm excited to see you take your bold move to the next level this year. Push pause and open up the show notes for this episode. Click the link for the Bold Moves Podcast Club to sign up right now. And now back to the episode. Welcome to the Bold Moves How Did You Know Podcast, a podcast for the naturally curious who want to define their own path. Here, I'm sharing bold move stories that propelled my guests from curiosity to action. And in doing so, they've defined a path that is purposeful to them. Through these stories, I hope you'll be inspired to pursue your boldest dreams. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Julie Randall. Julie is the author of Patient 71, an inspiring true story of a mother's love that fueled her fight to stay alive. Four days after her 50th birthday, Julie suffered a sudden and severe seizure at work. At the hospital, she was diagnosed with stage four metastatic advanced melanoma and got devastating news. She was told to get her affairs in order because she didn't have long to live. After getting over the initial shock, Julie fought off the fear and started searching for hope. She found an American experimental drug trial but she was told that there was only room for 70 patients and all the slots had already been filled up. But Julie promised her teenage daughters that she would find a way to fix it. 
So she refused to take no for an answer. Remarkably, Julie became patient 71. She discovered that when you push the boundaries, refuse to give up and never lose sight of your goal, extraordinary things can happen. Well, Julie, holy moly, that intro and you're, you know, just setting the scene for your story is I'm just so honored that you're here and that you're able to share your brave story with me and the listeners. I know that, you know, probably within your story are so many different moments of having to be bold. And that's really the focus of this podcast. So thank you again for being here. I'd love to start with your story. Just take us through your, you know, what happened, your diagnosis and the the trials and tribulations that you had to fight through. Yeah, sure. I'm so excited to be here as well. Thank you for having me. Just listening to that intro, it's crazy. This is, I still get choked up and it's, and it's like, who's she talking about? <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> okay, so we're 11 years in now. Going back to 2012, I just turned 50, as you explained, and the build-up to me turning 50, I wasn't a happy camper, right? So I'm calling this birthday my 4010th. It's on my invitations to the party. Yep, 4010th, didn't want to turn 50. And what's like now ironic about this, you know, I look back and think that was the least of my worries turning 50 so we had the party got over the fact that I was turning 50 and I was really grateful like I was a um, mother of two teenage daughters living on the northern beaches of Sydney Australia which is like the creme de la creme of where to live in Australia and the 2.5 children and the puppy dog and you know life was good life was good and also I thought, so I'm driving to work four days after my celebrations. And I remember this day so clearly because it was a wind, sunny winter's day. I'm driving along and I'm practising gratitude, like which I, it wasn't something, I mean, I was grateful for my life, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't something that I actually did on a, day-to-day or even week-to-week basis and I'm driving along and I'm saying you know thank you universe for my life I'm looking out the window looking you know I mean I was concentrating on the road but I'm looking out the window (laughs) and um I'm thinking thank you for my daughters thank you for my home thank you for my dog you know my job and even my husband got a mention so you know that's that that's how good my day was going, you know. And I was off to work that day and I worked in the CBD in, in Sydney and was having lunch that day down by the harbour. So I'm thinking life is spectacular. This is amazing. So I go to work that day, there for a little while. It's like, okay, let's go out for lunch. And a couple of colleagues and I, we go down by the opera house sit there, you know, had a couple of wines and lovely food and then it's time to wander back to work, which didn't particularly worry me. It's like, it's only a couple of hours and I go home and it was like the end of my working week. 
So I walk back in the office and a colleague says to me, one that wasn't at the lunch, hey, how was your lunch? And in that second, I looked up and I looked at him and I couldn't speak and I knew I was in absolute trouble. I just knew instinctively and I just said no words or can't find words, something really basic like that. He must have ushered me over to the foyer and I'm out. My world, the world just went black. So I wake up. I still to this day don't know how long I was out or what I was doing. It was a massive brain seizure right there in the office. So I'm looking down at the ground and all I can, you know, I remember just feeling so sick and all I could see was paramedics' boots and their clothes and my head's hanging down and they're saying, Julie, Julie, Julie. And I could hear what they were saying but I couldn't respond and, you know, finally I did manage to get my head up and um, I'm just, yeah, picked up, put on a trolley, taken in the ambulance to emergency into one of the Sydney hospitals where I stayed up and, and they did scans just on my head and they found a little tumour. Didn't know what it was or whether it may have been benign. I didn't know. And my husband's, by this stage, my husband's rushed over and he saying to me, oh, you, you know, we've been celebrating your birthday, just, you know, just tired. And anyway, I knew instinctively that wasn't the case. So we're there for 24 hours. I have all these other tests and I'm sitting in bed the next afternoon. My husband's next to me. See the doctor coming with interns either side and just by the look, just by the look on their faces, I knew that this was bad. I really wanted to just like rewind, you know, like I was in a movie, rewind them walking, walking backwards, you know. And they come to the bottom of the bed and he just says, Julie, you have tumours in your brain, your both lungs, your liver, your pancreas, you, all of your lymph nodes. I'm really sorry, this isn't good. Like 24 hours before I'm running, I was training for it state-level touch football tournament, like for an over 45 state level. Like the morning this happened, I'm running out. In the so I'm like, you can imagine the shock. And, and I'm like, what? And I jump out of bed and I've still got the hospital thing on and I just run and I just start running down the corridor and I just, my husband's like picking up my gear and the doctor's going, hey, wait, I've got to give you scripts for this. And that, no, I've ran. People say, where were you running to? And I say, the hills, anywhere, anywhere. So um, then we, I didn't even know where the car was, obviously. We go down the lift. My husband's like trying to get in the lift and come down with me and uh, we get in the car and I'm just like, 
what the hell? What what has happened? And we're driving through the city of Sydney. It's a Friday night at this stage. Everybody's out, hanging out of bars, bringing in the weekend, celebrating the weekend. And I'm like, I just remember thinking, how can you be doing that? And my life's just turned upside down. And they're having fun and celebrating while I'm start rehearsing how I'm going to tell my teenage daughters that their mother's dying. And that's what happened. And that's what I had to go home and do. So I go home. I remember the house didn't seem the same. Nothing felt the same. And sorry, this just gets me every time. And um, I had to I go upstairs to my bedroom because I didn't know where else to go. And then I hear my daughter's coming up the stairs and um, they just took one look at me and they're like, what? I said, I'm really sorry, you know, to my eldest daughter, Morgan, I've got cancer. And that's, I didn't, I left out the gory stage four, not long to live cancer. <laughs> and, and she just kept wailing, no mum, no mum. And um, my other little daughter just kind of sobbed in my chest. And um, I just said, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. I'm not going to die. Don't, don't, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to die. And at that very moment, I started what I call a dance with the monsters in my mind. And uh, the straight up, a monster jumped in and said, how the hell are you going to keep do that? You know, I'm saying, I'll promise. I promise I'll fix it. And it's like, good luck with that. <laughs> but when your daughters are distraught like that, and uh, that's what I said, and I guess in my mind I'm thinking if I, I'm i going to do everything I can to make this happen. If I can't, I want my daughters to know I there was no stone unturned in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Gosh, it's it's such an emotional it is. memory story. You know, I can. And this is eleven years, and it gets me every single time. every single time. Yeah, it almost feels like. I I wonder if to you it feels like a movie. Although you are this the center of it, it's it it feels like I'm as you're relating the story that I'm watching something on TV, not necessarily yeah. communicating with somebody who this happened to. If that makes yes. sense. Yes. So your natural reaction was, you know, to just want to fix it for your daughters. How did you start putting that puzzle together about what fix it even meant and how to approach that? And, you know, the diagnosis what seems so eminent as well. So I'm sure you are also trying to figure out how quickly is this all happening or progressing. So there was a whirlwind, I'm sure, that you went through. So I'd love for you to kind of talk about that. But also I was wondering for, as you look back, it doesn't seem as if there were any signs that you had the melanoma. Um. Did you, did you, there's nothing to point at that was like, would have 
helped you understand this diagnosis earlier? No, not at all. Like I'm, I'm fair. So I've had a lot of things mm -hmm. cut out, you know, spots cut out. And I was, I went to the skin specialist on a regular basis. Um, I'm sure a lot of people think, oh, why wasn't she having skin checks? Why wasn't she? Mm -hmm. Well, my story is that I didn't have any outwardly showing melanomas. It was Got um, you. This was yeah. inside. Yes, no, no primary. A lot of people sadly don't know this about skin cancer, and this is part of my what I do now as well. Um, it's just like, oh, it's just skin cancer. You know, they're the ones you get cut out of your skin. But no, melanoma is deadly. And especially back then, one of the deadliest cancers you can have. So there has been progress, which we might get, you know, hence I'm still here. But, um, yeah, so nothing, no sign. In fact, I thought I was as fit as I'd ever been in my life or, or one of the fittest I'd ever been in my life. You know, I, there's pictures of me at my party and look don't mind if I say this but it was my 50th someone said I was 40 you would believe me you know it I I was fit yeah so yeah the shock the, the yeah no signs whatsoever N not not a one so after to answer your earlier question about you know how do you know what moves to plan, what what to do. Um, the answer is I didn't. Um, the answer is I just had to put one foot in front of the other. So to start off, I was offered um, chemotherapy and I think the odds were like 10% chance of me even responding, albeit for a very short amount of time. This was not the answer. This was not going to keep me alive, and I knew it. However, I, I became an experiment the whole way through because a doctor, a local oncologist said to me, look, I've just been to this conference and I've seen that these two chemotherapies together have like a 38% chance of somebody responding so whilst I'm not a mathematician, not the smartest tool in the shed, I know the difference between 10% and 38%. I'm like, no brainer. That even came with its own problems because drug had to come from Germany and all this sort of stuff. And it, it's all in the book, but it took its sweet time. However, I did go on that double whammy. Uh, it was two different chemos and I responded. Quite shocking, quite shockingly well, actually. And in my mind, I sort of, I was fixated that I would, totally fixated, because I needed time to hatch a plan. And so I, I do remember the doctor even saying, oh, well, even the radiologist just couldn't believe how well that you responded to, the, to this chemotherapy. I'd never seen it before. So prior to that, I guess my, my mind's like, I'm like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I'm like pumped up like 
And so I respond to that and that went on for a few months and I was just concentrating on staying well throughout that chemotherapy. And then a few months in, I, I said to the doctor on a visit, actually it was more than a few months, it might have been about six months in, I said, how long is this? You know, I didn't want to ask, but it's like sometimes you can stick your head in the sand, this is working. How long is this going to work for? And he said, I'll put it this way, it won't be working in a couple of months, you know, very matter-of-factly. So this thing called melanoma, it goes like wildfire, you know. I mean, as you heard from my original diagnosis to someone fit and healthy, it was spread throughout my whole body, you know, without me even knowing. So when he says this about that this isn't going to be working in a couple of months, um, and look, I was, I'm going to tell you, I was pretty obnoxious in a lot of ways and I'm not a rude person, but it was just this defence kind of mechanism. And when you're in a, a situation and somebody that does the job every day, like your oncologist, they say things like, you know, they're saying, gee, the weather's bad today, you know. They said in, in that tone and I put my head down and I said, um, well, if you think I'm going to effing hang around and wait for that to happen, you know, you've got another thing coming. And he's, you know, my poor husband was like, oh, <laughs> he was embarrassed by me. So he starts saying to the doctor, is there anything else, you know, like, is there anything is there anything else about? And he's like, oh, look, I have heard of some experimental stuff, you know, just out of the rats. And my husband goes, you know, there's a funny saying in Australia, like, can you tip us in? Can you get us in? What he was asking for, what he was asking for is like a referral. It's like, can you tip us in? And the doctor said, no, that's if you want to go down that path, that's up to you. It's up to the patient. And it's like, Fantastic. You've just kind of been told your treatments are going to stop working. Basically, you're going to die, but we can't help you anymore. And so we go home and, and I'm in the car and I'm like steam coming out my ears and, you know, and I get home, like push past the dog, stick my head in the computer and the first thing I wanted to do was try and find somebody that had survived my diagnosis. And sadly, there was no one in the world. So, yeah, if there was, I couldn't find them. But I've since found out there actually wasn't <laughs> that we know of. So um, I realized in that moment that I'm it I'm the mentor I'm the one that has to lead the way here I'm the person I'm looking for so forget about forget about anyone else you're it so I find this clinical trial in Portland Oregon that's stage one and this is after hours of researching and it was like it just came into my face and it was like this 
it, it was a drug and it was a, an immunotherapy drug. So it, it's not chemotherapy. It's a drug that they were working with that basically teaches your immune system to fight the cancer. Doesn't fight the cancer, but it only but it only it only um, works on your good on the bad cells. It doesn't damage your good cells like chemotherapy does. You know, by this stage, I've got no hair, no eyebrows, no you know, I'm yeah, and I'm a very you know I'm, I'm quite a vain person, so <laughs> it's like. People say, oh, that's nothing. That's a not small price to pay. I'm no, that's a big price to pay. Sorry for me. And so I find this clinical trial and I'm like to my husband, Scott, that's where I have to be. That is where I have to be. And, you know, the fact that your body is helping itself and, and restoring itself, just I thought, how much sense does this make? This is, you know, and so then I start my campaign. I call up the very next day, I spoke to the person in charge of the clinical trial, and I've got to say they're just so amazing that they took calls from this person in Australia and I became the biggest serial pest you should ever imagine. And he was like, oh, wow, Australia, okay. Um, and I'm like, Hi, my name's Julie. I'm a, I'm a mother and I'm, I'm from Australia and I've got, my, you know, and they were really, really kind and they listened to me. But then the rejections came one after the other after the other and it was um, didn't even start off by saying they were full. It started off by saying, I'm really sorry, this is only for American citizens. Good luck. No, on your way. Um and then it was like, you. what if you die here? You're not in our medical system. And, you know, that's a huge possibility that you will, will die here. Just one thing after the other, and you won't stay for two years. You know, that's a long time to be away from your family and friends. And then finally they say to me, Julie, we're really sorry. The, the trial's full. We can't take any more. And the drug company won't take anymore. So they even had an out, you know. They didn't even have to blame yeah. themselves. They, like, they said, yeah, it's out of my hands. So I'm not the one yeah, to blame. Sorry to the me, drug company. You know. So it took three and a half months. All the while my dying period was at best I had nine months to live, at best. From the start. So from the start, from the start. So I'm I'm six, seven months in, not six months in at this stage. And keeping well, I'm still on chemotherapy, I'm running. I I had a mantra that I sung to myself every day, and I was one track mind. And then I'm like, I can't, I can't stomach and I can't cope with that I am going to die and leave my children because I'm not American. I'm I'm not a US citizen or this this trial is at full capacity. Come on, you can fit one more. <laughs> and yeah, and I just didn't give up. I just would not let go and then finally I think I I always say I may or may not have because it was it was a bold move. <laughs> uh I rang up 
rang up and recited the Hippocratic Oath over the phone to them saying when people become doctors or medical practitioners, the Hippocratic Oath says if you can help somebody, if you think you can help somebody, you must. That's pretty much what it says. Not in those terms because it's quite old and, you know. And that was my last-ditch effort. I think it was the next day or two days later, I'm walking around my house and I get a phone call and the phone call is from the hospital in Portland and they say, hey, Julie, what time would you like your appointment with Dr. Erber, who was the head doctor? And I'm like, what the? And basically they've said come over and I arrived there. I had to go off chemotherapy that was working, which I didn't tell anybody about because they would have thought I was stark raving mad, but I did, and that had to be out of my system, and I arrived, yeah, pretty much nine months to the day of my nine-month, you know, end of life supposedly in America. Yeah. Wow. That was that little journey. That, that there's so many lessons to take away. And I wonder what you would have to say about the traits and characteristics that you had to lean on, I guess, in order to make this a possibility for yourself, but also not give up, right? The other side of this is that it's maybe... I mean, it, it definitely sounds like it could have been easier to give up. I mean, there was a lot of obstacles. Um, so what kept you fighting? Um, and what did you learn in that experience of what it seems like you were picking up the call, the phone every day, calling this hospital in Portland, even though they've told you no? What, what I mean, how many times had it been? 10 times, 20 times um, oh, yeah. that you just kept calling and calling and thinking this can't be the end yes it was phone calls it was emails it was me harassing my husband to send emails it was I remember one day him being in the bathroom and me banging on the door saying what are you doing in there you have emails to send like you know I needed it to come from his perspective as well and, you know, this, and which which it did and some of the emails I found, you know, this is my wife, she's the mother of my kids, she's my everything, you know, like we put our heart and soul in, into that. And I just felt, and you know what, I'm not sick at this stage, right? I'm on chemotherapy. I had my brain tumour removed. I forgot to tell you that bit. So... That's 16 staples in my head and that didn't tickle, I can tell you. But apart from that, I really stayed as well as I could, you know, with exercise, with diet. With I did all of the things. And so when you're not feeling really sick, it's like, no, I'm not. I, this is can't be the end like and I, I believe you know when it does hit you it hits you really really fast which I just did not want to happen and 
whilst I had all the tumours scattered around, they were all quite small and, you know, when they grow, then that's when they cause, like, the damage. So, look, I just became one-track mind. It was like, yes, I looked after my kids and all the rest of it and I really protected them probably more than I should have from um, sort of harsh reality of the matter. And I'm just like, no, no, I've made a promise. I've been brought up to keep my promises. I am not going to to give up on this. And you know what, to be honest with you, my next move was probably just to go anyway, whether they, my next move to was go probably to turn, turn up at the hospital. To go to the hospital. hospital. Yeah. Yep, I don't know mm. whether, you know, how that would have gone over. And interestingly, like, Moving forward 11 years, I'm best friends with the people in the hospital. I've gone back to speak twice at their charity events, but they are honest and they say, oh, God, we thought, what have we got here <laughs> from Australia? You know, this. they thought I was going to be so painful. I ended up being, I ended up speaking, you know, like helping them raise money and doing all those things, but. I probably did seem like a real pain at the time. But I found this strength inside of me that I just, I was like a different person. I'd always been, you know, reasonably strong and fit and all that sort of stuff, but this was next level. This was finding another personality, basically, that was within me that I didn't know I had. And... Yeah, that I we fly over to Portland and you know, like all the while, there's no guarantee anything's going to work for yeah. me. No guarantee whatsoever. Yeah, I yeah. think we're still sitting at 38, 40% of chance yeah. that I would respond. Yeah. So, so, actually, that's a great segue into the, the next question because you've gotten into the trial. It's still experimental. We don't know if it's going to work. So, how long were you in the trial? What was that process like? And then how how did the cancer mir miraculously disappear? I don't even know the right word, but how did you find out you were cancer free? Yeah, great question. And it didn't miraculously disappear. So this is what's even more interesting about it. What I What I thought then and what I've found out since. So um, so six weeks, you know, you're infused with uh, this drug. In the beginning, it was of like quite a bit of time at the hospital and then as time went on, it kind of um, dwindled out to like once a week. And, yeah, so six weeks before you get a scan, part of the deal. When I was back here, I was a bit of a bossy boots and, you know, when I was on um, when I was on chemo, I'd be like, I want to scan, I want to scan. I'm like, okay, like, you know, two weeks later. But over there it was following the protocol. You just could not step outside it. So we're there for six weeks not knowing whether this is <clears throat> working for me. Yeah. We dragged, like, our, our daughters were teenagers. One of them stayed at home by herself. The other, they were both going to stay at home. One was doing her last year at school. The other one's dance teacher. But the night before, she just went, I can't stay without your mum, you know, which is understandable. She was really anxious, so we had to 
pick her up and bring her with us for a while. And so she was with us. Oh, she'd gone home by the time I even, um, Scott, yeah, we had to. Uh, no, I'm just trying to think of how that all panned out. But so six weeks later, we have scans and then it's the waiting to get the phone call. And I was back in our hotel room and the phone rings. We've got an American phone. We don't have many friends, none. The only person in the phone was the doctor. So we knew who we knew who it was when the phone rang. Yeah. And Scott, Scott and I are going, we're just staring at it, staring at the phone. I'm like, you pick it up, you pick it up. I just couldn't even bring myself to pick it up. And he he picks it up and he's gone, hi, Dr. Erba. And he said, well, you're, Julie's responding. And, and my husband, again, this makes me cry, just stood with the phone and gave me the thumbs up. And with that, I just slid down a wall backwards going, oh, my God, you know. So I'd responded. And then the next thing he said was, it's good, but it's not great. She has to keep going. So in in Julie's mind, Julie's like, one infusion, nothing to see here. They're going to, good to go, go home to Australia. <laughs> Everything's fine. But it wasn't that. It wasn't that. So this was a slow burn, a very slow burn. So I'm over there for, I ended up being over there for nine and a half months. The trial was for two years. Once again, I'm, I'm a, a girl of my word, big time. So is my husband. But in this case, we're like, we want to get back home as soon as we can. We want to get back home. So we started a campaign to get back home. And, yeah, and... Oh, it was really my my husband somehow hacked into the drug company and found someone's email address and because to them I'm a number I'm patient seventy one I'm they don't know my name they don't know who I am so Scott sent this heartfelt email saying patient seventy one's actually her name's Julie she's my wife she's a mother she's we come from Australia and. Um, yeah, I think they were totally perplexed at how we did that. Scott somehow found a card on the doctor's desk. and So it, it's all very clandestine. And then, yeah, and then I would sneak. I snuck home a couple of times to see my kids. I wasn't allowed to, but I did. So between, between a treatment, I get on a plane, come home, cut on my daughters and get you know, get on the plane and go back. I did that twice. And I think maybe the third time I was home, this is nine months in, right, in the morning of it was I was due to go back and for infusion in two days and I'm, I'm, I'm done, you know, and my, I'm just like I'm saying to my husband, I don't want to go back, I don't want to go back. And he's like, you're going back, I'm booking your flight today. And this time I was going back alone. No more money. He can't come with me. And I'm crying. And um, 
I threw a pillow at him, I think, and I think I, you know, used some language. But I knew I knew I had to go back. I knew I had to go back. So that morning when he left for work, he's going to book my flight. I flick the jug, make a cup of tea, go over to my computer just like this and I go on and I check my emails and I get this email and it says, your next infusion of nivolumab, which is the drug, it had a name by then, will be at the Patricia Ritchie Centre in Crow's Nest in Sydney in two weeks' time. So they bought the drug, they let, they're letting me go home and I'm already there, but they don't know. And I'm like, I'm like staring at the screen, like I'm home. I'm not going back. And I can have this drug. Yeah, I can have this drug here in Sydney. And at the 40 minutes away from home. And so that was just like, I was just like crying my eyes out. I ring my husband. Have you booked that flight yet? He's like, not yet, I'm just about to. And I'm going, well, you don't need to because and we're just like we're both crying. And um, I was able to tell my daughters I'm home now. And and then I, that went on for like two, three years that I had. Yeah, yeah. So what happened in the end, what I find out in the end, we did a 60-minute story here in in Australia. And what I find out in the end that even though I, I still looked like I had all these tumours, even though that they shrank to a certain part, they found out that it was just scar tissue in my body, not tumours. So for, so for years I'm thinking I still have tumours in my body. But you know what? I always suspected I didn't. I just knew in my gut. And when I would go to my appointments, I'd get a doctor, you know, because you start off with one doctor and then you're normal and they go, oh, your disease, your disease is stable, Julie. And I'd say, I don't have a disease. It was kind of this mind over matter thing. I don't have a disease anymore. It's gone. Turns out I was right. That's what I How long through. were they treating you for the disease when you maybe didn't have the disease? Or was that a yeah. necessary part of? I'll never know. I'll never know. I was really lucky to not have side effects from this drug. Um, I, I, my, thi my thyroid blew out. I've been on thyroid medication since day dot after the first or second infusion. That's okay. That's a small price to pay. But I didn't really get sick, so I kind of felt like I just, when it's not broken, don't fix it, like just keep going. But I, I did, luckily this drug is not a drug that, it's like a protein and it's not a horrible, horrible drug. Mind you, it can be for some people. People have had, you know, kidney and liver failure and stuff from this. So, yes. I guess I try not to think about how long I was on the drug. But, you know, look, I'm over grateful because I was alive. So, and I was around and it. Do you remember the day of having this realization that you were cancer free? And how did you tell your daughters? You know, this was all, you know, initially, right? That was what was keeping you going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
it was pretty much on 60 Minutes, which was delightful for, for them. They loved it. Oh, this is, this is, so I, I, had, I had the scan on TV and oh. I'm, yeah, and I'm like, they're like, are you happy to have like a scan? And I'm like, well, and I'm claustrophobic. So I hate having scans. And so I was a wreck, which was great TV because, you know, they, they're going to put me in the scanner and I'm like, what, you know, and it was all, all legit. It was all me. Like, um, and then when the results came back, I had a doc, I had an appointment and my doctor, my professor, she sits there with Scott and I and she says, um, you have um, a complete metabolic response, like obviously they've realised about the scar tissue and everything. You're cured from this. As far as we're concerned, you're cured from this disease. Well done. You're an inspiration, I think she said. And it's like, Scott and I, I think he said something like, oh, we'll get the champagne out tonight. You have to go and have a look at it. But, um, yeah, uh, and then it, it's funny because I tried wherever I could not to make a big deal to my girls and I didn't make a big deal out of that either. I just kind of went, oh, yeah, they've given me the big C, which is the, the good one, the cure, and it's all good. And they're like, yeah, of course, Mum. I promised them I was going to do it. They, Mum promises then it's going to happen. So, yeah, that was just a really, really amazing moment that I realised, oh, my God, I've gone from that to that and I'm, yeah. I'm a help, you know, crazy. Crazy. Yeah. Now looking back, does it feel surreal that that was your experience? It it does. As I said, when you were reading the intro, I'm like, yeah, girl, she, who is she talking about? And it, oh, it does seem surreal. Everything seems surreal. The fact that I, you know. So what happened with, the, you know, the book and stuff is like I I lay in, when, when I was on chemotherapy, you know, I, I went into menopause mm -hmm. because one of the drugs was a breast cancer drug. So I'm on a breast cancer drug and a kidney cancer drug for melanoma. And... Mm. <laughs> and I would uh, I would be laying awake at night, sweating and carrying on. I didn't even know what was going on at first until I, oh, the doctor's like, oh, yeah, sorry, I should have told you you're going to go into menopause. Oh, thank you. And Oh, yeah. I, yeah, and I lay there and I'm, I started examining my life and thinking, okay, Julie, so this is it. If this is where it ends. How do you evaluate your life? How do you sum it up? Did you do the, did, did you live to your potential? Did you do and like all the answers were coming back? No, you didn't. Mm. I didn't. Like I thought I had all the time in the world. You know, we have a saying here, and it's like, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna, you know, somewhere down the track. And I was, yeah, I, I was gonna do this. So I lay there and I'm like, and, look, it wasn't bad. I, you know, I was a pretty good mum. I say I didn't think I was going to win any Mother of the Year awards, but, you know, I was a pretty good mum. Played a lot of sport, worked, you know, did all the norms. But I thought, did I stretch myself? Did I actually delve inside to my potential? 
And the answer was a sad no. So I say to Mrs. Universe in the night, in the dark, we get through this. I promise, another promise, promise. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to give hope to others. I'm going to get on stage. I don't care if there's 8,000 people. And once again, monster, yeah, yeah, as if. But I'm making the I'm making these promises. And then when push came to shove and I had come back home and I was well and um I get this knock on the door on the other side. Hey, remember you made those promises about writing a book? Yeah. And it wouldn't let up. And I'm like, oh yeah, but you know. Like, I can't write. I wasn't even good at English. And I just kind of said that. It's like, no, you promised. <laughs> so there I go. I have to sit down and um, put pen to paper and away I went. And I'd never written anything in my life. And then I, I do get up and speak in front of however many people are in the room, no matter what, and, you know, spread the story of hope. So... That's, so I have now delved into that potential that I never would have had I have not been through this experience, and that is one of my biggest messages to people. Don't wait till you're told you're dying to start, you know, truly living. And we all get the monsters, you know. That's what stops people, these little voices that say, and they're usually little and sometimes they're very big, but, oh, no, what if you fail? What if you can't do that? And I had all those with the book as well, but I was a, I was a wake up to the the monsters then. I'm going, oh, no, like, thank you. I know you're trying to help because they're only trying to keep you safe. It's like the prehistoric, they think you're going to die, you're going to go out of the cave, and anything that's out of the norm is out of your comfort zone. They try to dissuade you from doing. And when you wake up to that, and you realise that they're only trying to keep you safe, that you're really not going to die, you know, you might succeed, you might fail, but, hey, the best part is just having a go. And so I'm a wake-up to all of that now, and I love to teach that to others. Like, And don't fight them. This is my message. Don't go, oh, F off, shut up, go away, I don't need you. That's mean because... They care about you. <laughs> you know, they they want to they want to keep you, they want to keep you safe. That's all they know. They don't understand the world's changed, how far we've come. That they they they're caveman oriented. And so if you go, oh hey, you know, thanks for caring. This is me. I'm like a split personality, you know, multiple personality. So I just go, hey, thank you. Guess what? I'm doing it anyway. Come with me. We're gonna have fun. You know, simple as that. What does, now that you have that mindset of living to your full potential, listening to those inner voices and stop saying, I'll get to that and do it, yeah. you know, as it arises, what does yep. it feel like for you now that you've had a chance to be able to do that? How does it make you feel to be it able to feels- say, I'm living at my fullest potential? It's the best. And it's definitely not the fullest yet. But um, it, yeah, plenty more to come, like, you know, write another book, which will be, again, another challenge because 
it won't just be my story. I want to do a transformational memoir, which is like parts of the story with my learn, just what I'm talking about Amazing. to you today. Yeah. So that'll be, that'll stretch me because it's not just sitting down writing what actually happened. I have to, you know, um, so I'm, ex- I'm excited about doing that. And of course, I still get the monsters, you know, even coming into a podcast, I would have done, I don't know how many of these and it's like, Oh, what if you forget what you what if you forget what you want to say? What if you don't, you know, it's like it's just human nature. Yeah. And it and it feels great. And I, I want it for everyone. I want it for as many people as I can, you know, um get that deep understanding that you are so much more than you think you are. And if you if you if you have a recurring desire about something that you want to do you are capable of it I don't believe you get the desire if you're not capable yes you've got to go through the steps yes it can be overwhelming but you're capable of it you know I don't get a knock on the door to say hey Julie I think you should be a rocket scientist you know I think you'd be a really good because that's not that's not for me that's not where I am in the world that's not my place in the world but what I do get and even before this happened to me, interestingly, I would get little nudges, hey, you should be out teaching, talking to people with, about, you know, your wisdom, whatever that may have been at the time. So that was always in the background even back then. But now I respond to the call. I haven't heard that before and it resonates so deeply that you wouldn't get the desire for it if you weren't capable of it. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to make a quote of that on my wall. I couldn't agree more. I just, I've been started this podcast back in March of this year and I've interviewed now, I believe you're my 20th interview. Actually, I I publish every other week and, um, and through all of the stories, um, that I've been learning and hearing and helping understand, you know, I've been understanding better about how people um, understand what it is they want and then how they go about their process of accomplishing it, which, you know, I call the a bold move, their yeah. process of making bold moves. I have collated, I suppose, a bold moves recipe. And the very wow. first, the very first part of the recipe is three parts, but the very first part is identifying your desire. And I think you just spoke to that, which is aligning what you want to do or what you're yet yeah, want to do or your next bold move with what who you truly are is really where the magic is. And I oh, love yeah. that extra added piece where you're not going to get those desires if you're not capable of it. That's such a relief, yep. actually, for people, isn't it? Yeah, it's re- you, you don't get the recurring desires if you're not capable of doing it it's yeah it's your soul it's your soul telling you what you your place in the world i believe um your you know your purpose if you want you you know your gift your story is so harrowing and brave and it reminds us all to never give up and to be determined and resilient 
Um, you don't know the power that's within you until you call upon it almost. And so if you can embrace that as early as possible, you'll, you'll be able, like you said, kind of, you'll be able to start living in your full potential and achieve those things that you want to. My final question for all my guests, Julie, is what do you know today about being bold that you wish you would have known earlier on? Wow. Well, definitely persistence, definitely persistence. I mean, when your life's at stake, you will, you know, you will have that persistence. But why is it only when our life's at stake, I guess? I think we give up a lot easier if it's something that's not life-threatening. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't. It's um, So I wish I knew that. I wish I knew that. Um, I wish I knew that things, incredible things are possible. And, like, as you know, my story started when I was 50 years old. Like, I was 61. I'd lived half my life before I even knew that I was capable of telling stories, writing, you know, sharing my wisdom, getting up on stage. Like, no, I, I, I just wouldn't have ever done those things before. And I really, yeah, want to impart that, yeah, just, just have a look-see. Have a look-see inside of you and just look. Plan your next bold move. There you go. Plan your next bold move and take the little steps towards it. What I did learn from this experience is one track mind and focus is a big key to, to getting there. You know, it's it's a big key. You know, sometimes you've got to push the other things right out of sight for a while. And just just focus on your end goal and um end goal. And also, you know, a big thing for me is I don't know if you've heard about a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. Number one, the biggest regret is that people didn't, you know, play their own songbook at play to their own songbook and achieve the things that they wanted to achieve, you know. And that to me says it all. You are the most important person in your life. And the satisfaction you get when you achieve a goal, huh? be, that, be that be staying alive or writing a book or whatever it may be, is just the best. And just one more thing's popped into my mind just to impart as well is that you are in control of your life in sickness and in health, no doubt about it. You know, I listen to doctors. I always listen to them, but I always went outside the box as well, which, so, yeah, thank you. And, look, I also would like to say I don't want to sound like a, um, oh, look at me, I survived, you know. I was very lucky. I did a lot of hard work to be lucky, but I I am very lucky and not everyone is. And I just want to make sure that I don't come across as like being what we call in Australia cocky. 
because not, I'm not. Not at all. It, your, your story is such an inspiration and it just signifies to me that we need to do everything within our power to fight for our dreams in whatever situation it is, you know, fighting for your life, fighting for your goals, your dreams. Um, you need to put all your energy behind it. And that's what your story, uh, that's that's a big takeaway from your story for me. So thank you so much for being here, Julie. Where can people buy your book called, it's called Patient 71, an inspiring true story of a mother's love that fueled her fight to stay alive. So where can people go to buy your book? So it, it, it's in America now. Um, I think like Amazon, Awesome. And if, if anybody wanted to follow you on Instagram or online, is there somewhere they can go for that? Uh, but Instagram is at patient71 underscore. And I have a website, which is julierandall.com.au. One last thing before I leave you today, don't forget to sign up for the Bold Moves Podcast Club. I'm so excited about this podcast club. We are going to deep dive into the different topics that my guests talk about every month. It's like a book club, but for my podcast. And the idea is that each month you're going to receive an email to dive deeper into these topics and themes that my podcast guests explored about being bold over the month. That's because nobody said being bold was easy and we all need a little support and encouragement and also understand what are some of these uh, practices that you can put in place in your own life. How can you think differently about being bold? Because to get to who you want to become may require some changes in what you do to get there. So I'm helping you through this Bold Moves Podcast Club to empower you to take bold action on your dreams. It's free to join, so just go over to my website, kristenrocco.com, or even easier, open up the show notes right now, click the link, and sign up. It's that simple.